When I was eight years old, I made the decision to follow Christ. And um, I was fortunate to be in a church that really invested in uh, young children when they made a decision. Um, I spent months um, being discipled by my pastor, meeting with him on a weekly basis, making sure that he I understood the decision that I had made and so forth. In fact, uh, I was in that discipleship training for so long that uh, I walked the aisle in one church and was baptized in a different one because we were building and we moved um, during that time. Uh, but at nine years old, uh, we had an evangelist come. And the evangelist got up and uh, he was he was pretty smooth. He was some well-known guy. I, I can't remember exactly who he was now, but he was one that was nationally known, one of those nationally known evangelist guys. He came to our church, and um, through the course of the week, he basically, the way I would describe it, is he laid seeds of doubt in people's minds. And so by the last night of the revival, he basically said, got up during his message, says, if you've ever had any doubts, if you've ever questioned your faith, if you've ever questioned whether or not you were a believer, if you've ever had any um, uh, concerns about that, I want to tell you tonight that you're, you're probably not a believer, is what he said. And he said, he, he used logic, as you would call it, I guess. He said the Holy Spirit wouldn't plant those doubts if you were actually a believer. The Holy Spirit would be telling you to come forward, wouldn't he? And so... I'm sitting there, and my nine-year-old analytical mind, great as it was, says, that makes sense. And so I went forward. And, uh, um, you know, I, we went back to a room where we were all counseled and all those other things, and I filled out the card saying I had doubts about my salvation. Fortunately, the same pastor who had discipled me continued to disciple me, and he pulled me in and, and talked and ministered to me. But as I look back on that time I, I, and all the times that God has used me in ministry over the years to deal with people who had doubts, I become very aware how easy it is to begin to doubt your salvation, to begin to question, because you're talking about something that is for eternity. And you just don't want to get that wrong. And so things happen in life, struggles come your way, doubts set in, and it can become very easy to, to get kind of disconnected from your faith in some ways, to, to discover that you do have these doubts. You do have these fears. And as we're talking about being a disciple and following in Christ, those kind of doubts can really undercut your faith. They can undercut your ministry. They can undercut your walk. As you, as you think about reaching out and sharing Christ, as you think about reaching out and, and ministering to, to others, having those doubts can really begin to, to, to cause problems. Well, what's going on when we doubt our salvation? What, what is it that I that is going on in terms of our own lives that, that lead us down that path. Well, I think sometimes we're prioritizing the wrong aspects of our relationship with God. 
That is, we're focusing upon the wrong parts of our connection. Sometimes it's we're focusing on our sin rather than on His grace. We see our mistakes. We, we see the, the, the uh, things we do that are not what they should be. And, and we forget just how amazing, how wonderful, and how significant uh, grace is. That God has, as we said last week, the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We forget that amazing, wonderful promise. Sometimes we have the wrong expectations about our relationship with God. We, we think, you know, maybe we were told, when you come to Christ, everything's going to be great. You know, you're going to have joy uh, abounding. You're going to have peace. Uh, beyond your comprehension, you're going to have all of these things, and 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 we take that to heart to to mean that it's always going to feel that way, and we're never going to get down, and we're never going to have those moments of sorrow. And so when those aspects come in, then we start to wonder, well, well maybe I'm not a believer. You know, I keep messing up. Would somebody who's a believer keep messing up? And so uh, we begin to to underestimate what grace can do. Sometimes it's because we've developed trust issues. We question evidence of salvation that is present. We question who God is. We say, is, can it really be that easy? You know, because human tendency is what? I want to earn it. You know, Can it really just be about what you accomplished? cross. And sometimes it's because we have a damaged relationship, because there's sin present, and we feel the guilt of that sin, and instead of taking it and confessing it to the Lord and, and, and realizing and recognizing He's dealt with it, we, we continue to, to just kind of dwell in it. But this morning I want us to look, continue on in Romans chapter 8, and I want us to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in adopting us, in making us individuals who belong to God. And I want us to, to look at this in terms of hopefully instilling some confidence in terms of who we are before God, but also in terms of helping us to, to walk again as stronger disciples, as individuals who are, who are making a difference, who are engaging the world. And so we're going to look in verses 14 through 17. It says, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons, or God's children. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs, with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray this morning that as we look at this passage, we look at the work of Your Spirit in our lives. God, we pray that You would encourage, that You would enliven, that You would help us um, to understand more completely what it is that You've done, the work that You've accomplished in our lives and that we can stand in that, and we can have confidence in that, and we can um, reach out and minister 
because of that, use this time for your glory, God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So where Paul starts here in, in verses 14 through 16 really is, is trying to, again, he's trying to carry out that, that whole issue of assurance. Chapter 8 is, is his concluding uh, thesis, his, his concluding discourse on the issue of assurance. And so he moves from the empowering work of the Spirit in the first part of chapter 8 to now in the center part, the adoptive work of the Spirit and how that should instill in us a confidence uh, to, to do the things that we've been called to do. Last week I explained that, that one of the components of, of a life in the Holy Spirit is being confidently situated. That is, to, to be in a situation, to be in a circumstance to where we're firmly set, to where we feel like this is exactly where we belong. And, and Paul expresses that here by using the language of adoption. Now, there's, sometimes there's, there's a struggle in, in our culture and so forth with this whole idea of adoption and so forth. I remember the, one of the first churches I served on staff at, um, one of the ladies there, uh, after preaching a message or teaching a lesson on this particular passage, in fact, she said, I don't like that. I don't like the idea that I'm adopted by God. I, I, I want something more. I, I want it to say something more significant. I want it to say something more secure. Adoption just seems kind of, I don't know, second rate to me, is what she said. And I don't know if that's her history or her background or, or some other struggles she has, but uh, I want to assure you this morning that it's not a second-rate position, especially in the Roman culture uh, within which Paul is addressing this. It was, a very, it was a very common experience. It was a very common way of carrying on your lineage. It's a very common way of raising somebody up to a significant position. Perhaps the most famous of all, quote, adopted individuals was Augustus Caesar, that when Julius Caesar was, was drawing toward uh, this expression of power and so forth, he did not have a male heir. And he wanted to make sure that, that his power and his influence and, and all those things that were a part of his life uh, were passed on. He adopted Augustus. And because of that, when it came time um, to... Uh, to transition to new leadership, Augustus had that extra added uh, expression of his authority, of his position. Because when you're adopted in the Roman culture, what that means is that, um, number one, you can't be disowned. Okay? You could disown your own children in the Roman culture. You could, you could say, no inheritance for you. You could say... There's nothing that, that is a part of me that's going on with you after I pass in the Roman culture. But if you had went to the expense and the, the work of adopting someone, you could no longer disown that person. They were yours, and you were responsible for them, and they had certain privileges before that. And I think that's a big part of what Paul's drawing on here is that when we are adopted, when we are called the sons and daughters of God, when we are brought into that relationship, that what he's saying here is that can't be severed. That can't be separated. He's going to say that in much stronger terms with the last part of chapter 8, but he, I think right here he's saying he's hinting at that, trying to lead us in that direction. We have a firmly set position in God. 
when you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, when you have been transformed by His work, there is nothing that can separate you from that. There's nothing that can take that away. And that should create in us a confidence. Secondly, he says that, that when you are adopted, you're led by the Spirit. Verse 14, for all those led by God's Spirit. Now, the, the, the led means to be driven or motivated by. It doesn't necessarily mean what we uh, sometimes mean it to mean. You know, where it means, well, you know, the Spirit told me these things. And I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't work that way. What I'm saying is that that's not really the focus of what Paul's trying to conclude here. He's, he's trying to say, when you are in Christ, you are motivated by the Spirit. You're motivated by a relationship. Because the language here is passive. That is, it's in the passive voice, which means you've allowed it to happen. You, you, you're, you're continuing to allow it to happen. And so that's a significant reflection here that, that for a believer, our motivations are driven by the Spirit, by, driven by His Word. Third, you know the Father, and the Father knows you. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's a very intimate expression. Sometimes I struggle with that. I struggle with that expression. I struggle with that communication of connection with God. Because there is a sense, to some degree, in which it means daddy. And I really just struggle with the idea of calling God daddy. I just do. Part of that probably comes from the fact that I grew up in a home where, again, there were certain things you called dad, and there were certain things you didn't call dad, and, and that's just kind of ingrained into me. And so when I think of that, okay, but I, but I think that the closest thing I can come to in terms of the intimacy of this is um, especially my daughter. Okay, when my daughter wants something, she says, Daddy, and she gets it, okay. She knows she's safe in that expression. She knows there's a connection there that she can lean on. She has confidence to ask things that perhaps she wouldn't otherwise ask because of that connection. And that's what Paul's getting at here, that we have this connection with the Father that allows us to have a confidence to ask for things we might otherwise not to have a confidence to, to walk in ways that we otherwise might not. That we, we, um, we know that He's with us. We know that He's guiding us. We know that He's protective of us. We don't have to worry about what might come against us because Dad's right there. Dad's going to intervene. And then we also have an inner confirmation. He talks about how the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit. I was thinking this week, as, as reflecting upon the message last week and so forth, um, and just listening to prayers. And I mentioned last week how we, we don't really mention the Spirit in our prayers. And, and one of the things I noticed was, you know, we typically start out Heavenly Father, which 
again, following the model prayer that Jesus gives, makes total sense, thoroughly appropriate. But then we'll typically say something along the lines of, Father, I thank you for your son and what he's done for us. And then we'll go on with the rest of our prayer, whatever it may include. I wonder how our view of the Spirit would change if we said, I thank you for your son and all he's done for us. And I thank you for your spirit and all that he's done for us. How he has empowered us. How he has sealed us. How he has guided us. How he has comforted us. If we began to to recognize that work in, in a more verbal way, because the spirit does indeed testify together with our spirit that we are God's children. He confirms that in our heart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. It's our testimony. It's it's our expression. It's our communication. And we can say that, and we can feel that, and we can experience that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't just stop with, with this confidence that the Spirit can create in us. It also moves into privileges and responsibilities. When you are a child of certain individuals, you have certain responsibilities. One of the struggles uh, that um, my wife and I always were worried about was for our children, being preacher's kids. Okay, When you're a preacher's kid, things are just different. They just are. You are looked at. You are seen. You are judged. You are evaluated. I remember the first evaluation I got at a church that actually did pastoral evaluation. The personnel committee did them. The the first several sentences were about my family. And I went off because they're not there to evaluate my family. They're there to evaluate me. The But that's just the nature, isn't it? That's just the nature. We look, well, that's the pastor's kid. They should be acting a certain way. They should be doing certain things. They should be not doing certain things. That's unavoidable in some ways. When you're a child of certain individuals, you have certain responsibilities. When we are a child of God, we have certain responsibilities. We have certain things that come our way. And the first thing that I see here in terms of that responsibility is what? It's to share in the suffering of Christ. Paul here uh, alludes to it at the end of verse 17, if indeed we suffer with Him. And I think that if is probably better translated since. Since we suffer with Him. I think it's a communication. It's a conditional clause, but it's a, it's a, it's a conditional clause that, that expresses the, the surety of it. We are indeed people who share in Jesus' sufferings. How do we prepare for that? Because I'm not ready for that. When I consider the suffering that Christ went through, when I consider the things that He encountered, I'm not ready for that. How do we do that? Number one, no shortcuts. No shortcuts. I like shortcuts. If there's an easier way to do it, I'm going to find it, and I'm going to do it. Okay? But there are certain parts of life you cannot take shortcuts with. You have to 
be committed to what God has called us to. We have to be invested in what God is doing in our life. We have to be expressing that. Secondly, we need to understand that the values that we possess are the opposite of what the world does. First shall be last. To be poor in spirit is to receive a blessing. It's these things that are very different than the values of the world. We need to begin to to exercise those, express those, communicate those, take on those. Third, obedience needs to take a priority. That needs to be a part of our expression. When you do something, it becomes your attitude. There is a, there is a reality in life um, in which sometimes we think our attitudes drive our actions, and they can, but sometimes we fight against our attitudes. Sometimes we fight against our beliefs, our positions, our feelings. And, and when we do that, what generally begins to happen is we then lose those attitudes or those feelings. We need to drive our life according to our actions. We need to feed our attitudes through our actions. And then fourth, we need to remember the end goal. What is the goal of the believer? To know Christ and to make Him known. That is who we are. And if we have those sorts of mindsets in place, if we have those sorts of uh, actions and priorities in place, then I believe we'll begin to, to be ready to experience Christ's suffering in a way that glorifies Him rather than cast aspersions on our faith. But not only do we have the responsibilities, we get the privileges. We get to share in Jesus' glory. Verse 17. We are also glorified with Him. Now think about that. Think about what a promise that is. What a what a great expression that is. We get to share in Jesus' glory. That's grace. Because there's nothing I've done ever that's worthy of that sort of uh, reflection, that sort of honor. But what He has done for me and what He continues to do through me and what the Spirit continues to teach me and instruct me in gives me that privilege. And therefore, third, we get to share in Christ's inheritance. When we're called joint heirs, what does that mean? You ever thought about that? We hear it all the time. I'm a joint heir with Christ. What does that mean that I'm a joint heir with Christ? Well, it, it's furthering the whole uh, adoptive imagery that what is the father's becomes the adopted sons, and so forth. It's, it's continuing those things. It's repeatedly promised. I believe it has to do with the world and how we interact with it, at least in part. It's probably more than that, but at least in part it's that. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth. As your possession, there's what? That's a messianic promise. Jesus' inheritance is the nations. 
gets even more specific, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. For all things belong to you. Paul's talking to the church here. He's not talking to Christ. He's talking to us. And he says, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world uh, or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. All things belong to you. That is huge. Now, again, I want to be careful that we don't step off into a health and wealth type of mentality where, you know, name it and claim it and everything's just going to be smooth and wonderful and all that. But I, I want us to see how significant this is. That I believe what 1 Corinthians 3 is saying is in the end, God does not merely defeat every enemy for your good, but turns enemies into servants, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. We don't just conquer, we become more than conquerors. All things are yours, life and death. All things are yours. All things will serve to bring you joy. Now that's pretty dramatic. Because that, again, should change our mindset. Again, not to a sense of presumption, but to a sense of thankfulness. That though I don't deserve any of this, God is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love God. Later on in this chapter, he's going to say that. How can all things work together? Because we have an inheritance in Christ that is ours. And if God is all-powerful and if God is working in those things, if God is moving in those things, then that changes everything. And that should lead us to the place to where we are sharing the hope that God has given us. The song we sang about being His hands and feet, taking us light into the world. That is, that is the power that we experience. But we only experience that if we listen to the pleadings of the Holy Spirit, if we follow the Holy Spirit's direction, if we are led by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit. Too often we get wrapped up in other things. I think everybody here who is a parent or has worked with young children has experienced that time where the child wants what they want, and it doesn't matter what or whatever else you offer them, it's not going to satisfy them until they get that thing. Y'all with me? Y'all experience that? They're just crying and they're screaming. And you, Look, I got this. Sometimes you've taken them to this great place, Disneyland or Disney World. Man, but they don't get that little pinwheel or whatever it is, little 50-cent thing. They're, they're screaming, they're crying, I want that, I want that, I want that. And you're like, I don't understand it. You're inches away from something that's really, really great, and you're crying about this little 50-cent whatever. That's kids. That's how kids function. But guess what? We're not that different. As believers, we're inches away in a lot of ways from 
from the glory and the privilege and the hope and the joy and the fullness of our salvation. And we get mired down and we get frustrated and we start crying over something small. And God is saying, look at all I've given you. But I want that. We need to learn as the Spirit drives us to be intentional in our faith, to be intentional in our love. Elor Nost put it this way, Do not be dismayed by the brokenness of the world. All things break, and all things can be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So go, love intentionally, love extravagantly, love unconditionally. The world, the broken world, waits in darkness for the light that is in you. We live in a world where we can make a difference. Where we can love extravagantly and unconditionally and intentionally. Why? Because the Spirit provides us that capacity. We simply need to begin to listen to what the Spirit's saying, submitting to where He's leading, and being mindful to what He's calling us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for each person here. God, we do thank You for Your Son work that he accomplished on the cross. Lord, we thank you for your spirit and all that he continues to do in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to commit to living intentionally, to living passionately, to loving fully. Help us, Lord, to to see the adoptive work you've accomplished in our hearts, in our lives, as something that drives and motivates us to share our hope with a broken world that needs to see that light and that hope. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never experienced that that transforming work, who's never come to a place where they've given their life to you and discovered what it is you can do with a world with a life that's broken, that you would lead them this morning, that they would respond in faith. God, whatever it is you're laying on hearts here this morning, whatever it is you're drawing people to include, to do, to pursue. I pray that you would help us to be submissive to that leadership. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.